Okay, I'm glad you're here. Uh, a bit of sort of a, a grab bag of, of topics today. Just, just kind of, we'll just kind of uh, jump from thought to thought, if, if that's okay. But um, uh, just, just let's start off with uh, with Pinchas. You know, sometimes there's a, there's an easy uh, correlation between the the Hebrew name and the English name. For for instance, um, Avraham and Abraham. You can really you can really hear the uh, uh, you know that it's 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 the same name in both languages. Um, uh, Pinchas actually has a a English uh, equivalent, um, which is Phineas, which I, I'm always surprised by. You know because you, you wouldn't necessarily associate those two names. And Pinchas is a really um, singular singular individual um, because of of sort of the the counterintuitive uh, uh, actions that he's able to um, balance harmoniously, and it's um, it, it's it's very very hard to um, express very very strong emotions, and to be at the same time completely selfless. Sometimes people think that. Um, the stronger that they feel about something, the stronger their opinion is on a subject, they, they sense, this is just how we're wired, I think. Um, I think we're all sort of, um, I don't know when you use the word guilty, but we're all sort of guilty of this, uh, which is the stronger we feel about something, the more convinced that we're right on that subject. And yet, oftentimes, there's no correlation between how strongly we feel about something and the level in which we're right. So that's, it's a little bit humbling, you know? And you can remind yourself of that in certain situations because, because the more you're convinced that you're right, that only leads to um, uh, usually um, very uh, unproductive other character traits like uh, lack of cooperativeness, and um, arrogance, and impatience, and all sorts of things. So if you keep in mind that just because you feel extremely strongly about something, that doesn't ensure that you're any more right, then that, that's a very nice uh, balancing type of um, sort of thought to, as a check and balance for, for your own actions. Now, Pinchas felt extraordinarily strongly about something, leading to his killing two people. Um, and it turns out that not only was he completely right and that he stopped a plague that was sort of devastating uh, the Jewish people, um, but at the same time that this, this fiery sense of justice that he was feeling was not based on his own ego at all. It was completely uh, just about wanting to serve God, and that's God's will. And the anger that he felt was not a, a personal slight, but a sense that, that God's name is being, you know, desecrated. And then he took the action that the halacha itself states that one should take. Um, so, so while this may not sound that dramatic, you know, you say, well, there are lots of vigilantes and there are lots of fanatics or, you know, but, 
But I would really ask you to, to listen very carefully to what I'm saying. He was in a completely separate category, and again, maybe unique in the history of, of humanity for doing it the way he did it. In other words, a lot of times when someone disagrees, let's say you want to talk about religion with someone, right? You want to tell them, you know, there's a God. There's a God who made this world and everything like that. And the person says, no, what there are are, uh, you know, chemical, biochemical kind of things firing in your brain, and that's the way we're wired to think that way, and all those things are just, it's just brain chemistry. And you go, no, 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 God, look at the world. Look how amazing the world is. Look how vast it is. Look how intricately organized it is. That, that didn't just happen on its own. And the person says, well, I posit infinite universes, and in the infinite number of universes there are, one of them works out in a very ordered way. Now, by the way, just as a PS, there, there are people who say that, and people who, you know, I guess are otherwise intelligent say, say that. But, but there's a very funny thing embedded in that thought that they've just told you, which is that in order to defend that there is no God, they have posited an infinite number of universes. Now, where did those infinite number of universes go? come from? Number one, that's, that's question number one. Question number two is, you believe that there are infinite numbers of universes? Like, that's a very high level of belief. I just believe there's one universe, right? Like, you know, so you actually, in denying your belief in God, are actually doing it by believing something way more than I'm believing. So, so we just have to sort of like just, you know, exhale for a moment and just examine like the different, the different premises that are, that are operative. Anyway, so the person says, no, this, the, the, the intricacy of this universe really doesn't point to anything. And then you start to get a little bit more uh, impatient or uh, offended, or whatever it is, and some anger starts to come out. And this is, this is the point that I want to zero in on. This moment of when you become upset. Because why are you becoming upset at this moment? You know, remember the famous teaching of the, the Kutzka Rebbe. You're not surprised when you meet someone who doesn't look like you. So why are you surprised when you meet someone who doesn't think like you? Right? So... Really, we shouldn't be surprised. For you, all these thoughts are very natural. They're very logical. You looked into them. Whatever it is. And now you're meeting someone who it's not logical for. It doesn't make sense. It's not easy for. So why should that surprise us? So what's, what's, what's happening often is it's not that I'm getting upset that you are denying the existence of God or that I feel, forget about God for a moment. Well, God forbid that we should ever forget about God even for a moment, but, but let's zero in on another point, which is that, that at that point, oftentimes what's happening is in addition to offending your religious sensibilities, or we could be substitute the word politics here or anything else right now. What they are doing is offending you personally and your ego. Because this is something that I believe in very strongly, I've invested in very strongly, and if you're disagreeing with this, 
You're disagreeing with me. You're insulting me. Now, all of a sudden, now, when I'm defending God or whatever it is, now, all of a sudden, the, the, if you want to get into the real mechanics and the real battlefield going on right here, it's not just a conversation about theology anymore. It's me defending me and my honor and my ego and my life against your ac- accusations. And at that point, everyone is no longer Pinchas. <laughs> that's, and and that's, that is the remarkableness about Pinchas, was that he took the most extreme action without himself being, without his own ego being on the line at all. And to go through the entire process that he went through without it becoming about him is, is unique. It's remarkable, actually. It's, it's, it's remarkable. Now, we have a, a Kabbalistic teaching, which is Pinchas Zu Eliyahu. Pinchas becomes Eliyahu. And we know that Eliyahu, Elijah the prophet, is the one who lives forever. And when Elijah the prophet died, he ascended straight to heaven. And it's recorded in Tanakh. It's in front of Elisha. And what happens is, is basically, he separates into four components, like earth, fire, air. I don't know if there was another one in there, but, but that's basically what happens as he rises and sort of like transforms into energy. And the explanation that, that I heard was that because he was so balanced as a person that he was actually able to separate into these constituent parts because he was so harmoniously integrated. Now, once... You see, this is what's, um, this is what's in uh, uh, action when Pinchas gets, gets confronted with this situation. In other words, it's, it's, it's just God he's defending at this point. It's not his own honor. And so that separation, that harmonious balance, you see evidenced in Pinchas as well. Um, I'll give you another, just another example of this. The Chos of Lublin, one of the greatest Hasidic masters, once said to, uh, I believe it was the Ropshitzer Rebbe, um, said to him, listen, uh, if you ever see me giving over a shear, if you ever see me teaching a lesson and um, getting too excited, probably that's my ego is, is, is entering into the teaching. So please just signal to me so that I should know to be able to remove my ego from the lesson. And, and by the way, I, I once heard a story I think it was Reb Chaim Vital, who was the greatest, I think it was Reb Chaim Vital, but one of the greatest students of the Ari, um, the, you know, who obviously this was the, you know, this in Sfat, this is really the, the golden age of, of uh, Kabbalah. Uh, he was giving over uh, a thought before the, 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 the people there. And at one point, he, he made a point and snapped his fingers. 
And the Ari stood up and walked out. And he asked, like, why? Because he said, at that point, I saw that you were so personally invested that, that there was a touch of ego that had entered into the teaching. He said, at that point, I had to leave. Um, I'll give you another example of this, which is uh, Reb Chaim of Velozhin, who is the greatest student of the Vilna Gon, um, and uh, is really, believe it or not, the inventor of the modern yeshiva system. Because the way that people got a Torah education for, for most of Jewish history was uh, there would be a teacher in the town and the parents would pay the teacher and then they would send their, their kids to that teacher. But it wasn't an organized school, really. And it wasn't, um, there wasn't like a syllabus. You know, it was much more freeform. Now it's much more institutionalized and it resembles like, you know, like a, a school school. But the idea of the school school, as we know it today, that's just teaching Torah subjects, the, the modern yeshiva, which really started in the, I guess, I don't know, the 1800s or something like that, um, that's, that's a modern invention in, in Jewish life, believe it or not. And the architect of that was Reb Chaim of Velozhin. So Reb Chaim of Velozhin um, suggested suggested uh, this idea to the Vilnagon, and the Vilnagon went, no, no, don't do it. And then many, many years later, I, I believe that the Vilnagon was at the end of his life at this point, Reb Chaim of Elogian, like couldn't get this idea out of his head and just felt like this is a good idea, you know? And so he came back to him years and years later and said, you know, what about this idea? And the Vilnagon said, yeah, you should absolutely do it. And he said, but, you know, I suggested this to you years ago. And he said, yeah, but when you did it, you were so, your ego was so invested in it that it, it wasn't going to be successful. You know, just like it was just a, a tainted thing. So you see, you see, I, I, I'll give you another example of this, okay? Which is, um, this is one of my favorites. This may be my favorite of all of them. Which is, I heard um, from Rabbi uh, Shalom Brot um, about uh, the Chernobler Rebbe. So that's the Meor Enayim, one of the greatest Hasidic masters. That in his book, and this is one of the classic uh, Hasidic uh, Sfar, one of the, the greatest Hasidic books, the Meor Enayim, uh, which means uh, the, the light of the eyes, um, that he only put teachings in that book. You ready for this? He only put teachings in that book that he didn't remember saying. And the reason is because if he didn't remember saying them, then that means that they flowed through him in such a way that there was no ego attached to it whatsoever. So, so you see, and then I'll give you another example, which is, which is maybe perhaps the classic example which is that when the Medrash says that when, when Moshe Rabbeinu, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, the Sutton, um, the heavenly accuser, came up to him and said, what an awesome, what an awesome thing that you did. You, you, you brought the Torah down from heaven? And Moshe is like, I don't know what you're talking about. No, you, you took the Torah and you brought it down to earth? You, you did that? He said, I... I really don't know what you're talking about. 
And this goes on back and forth. And then God says, because you didn't take any credit for this, from now on it will be called Torah Moshe. In other words, now it will have your name on it, the Torah of Moshe, because you completely divested yourself from it, so now it's yours. And again, that was Moshe's greatness, was that he was a pure channel, that he didn't invest any of his own personality into, into the text itself. Um, even to the point where, to show you how remarkable this is, even to the point where the last several verses of the Torah take place after the death of Moshe. And Moshe's writing after his own death, writing, writing it down, what happens after his own death. So there's a debate, did Yehoshua write that, the, the last few verses, or did Moshe write that? And there are opinions back and forth, there's support back and forth. Interestingly, as far as I know, we say that uh, Yehoshua wrote it. In the end, I think that's halacha lamaisa, and the reason why I, I believe that that's that that that's how we come down officially speaking, is because um, a bar a, someone who's not bar mitzvah is not allowed to read from the Torah on behalf of the congregation. However, the last few verses, someone who's not bar mitzvah is allowed to read, and I believe that's because those last few verses have the status of. Yehoshua having written them, not Moshe. So they have a slightly different uh, set of rules attached to them. But nonetheless, there are very strong opinions that Moshe himself wrote. But again, you see the, the bigger point here is that it's, it's completely divested of any aspect of Moshe. So this is, this is the greatest Torah. This is the Torah that lasts forever. Is the Torah that isn't... Um, that isn't about me, you know? Um, so, so, now, let's just make sure that we're understanding what I'm saying. A person has to be passionate about their learning. And I'm not arguing for, that someone should have sort of a clinical sort of relationship with the text at all. That's, that's not what I'm saying at all. But nonetheless, when, when someone is bringing down pure insights from Shemayim, from heaven, that, that, that it's got to be about the Torah itself. It's got to be about revealing the oneness of God and not about making myself important. That's, that, that's the primary thing. And Pinchas did his great act completely. It was only about God. And you see, there are a lot of people who will say, and you see lots of fanatics in the world today. And these fanatics, if you sit down with them, they'll tell you how it's 100% about God. But it isn't. It just, it just isn't. If you were to take an x-ray and put it, you know, over their body, and if you could see their heart, and if you could see their soul, if you could see their mind, if you could see their ego, you would see that they're, they're lying or they're deluding themselves. Okay, and what, you know, one um, early in my sort of like uh, kind of Torah study, I had the uh, privilege of going to this uh, Breslover yeshiva in East Jerusalem, and um, I sat just for a short time with with one of the uh, rabbeim there, one of the rabbis there, and he told me something I'll, I'll never forget. It he said to me that um, 
He said it in the name of the Ari, and he said, he said that if a person could look in the mirror and actually see their true spiritual level, they would have a heart attack on the spot. So our, 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 our capacity for self-delusion is enormous. It's enormous. Now, by the way, part of that is a gift. Part of that is actually a chesed, a kindness from God, because it allows us to work on ourselves incrementally, which is the only way that we're going to be able to get anything done. And I always think that a beautiful example of this, um, I thought one time uh, by Bedikas uh, Chametz, when we search for Chametz, um, so this is uh, the night before uh, Pesach, before Passover starts, we have to get rid of all the bread products from the house. And after we've kind of done the, the majority of the cleaning, you know, we've been probably working on it for days or weeks at that point, um, you light a candle and you go around the house and, or, and you, you, you search to see that you, you got everything. So interestingly, the halacha is you have to light a candle, but you can't light a torch. So a torch would be like a havdalah candle or something like that. In other words, something that really creates a lot of light. Now, what's on a spiritual level, what are the dynamics? We know that chametz represents ego and uh, also evil, really. And so, and, but we're really checking our own house. You know, you're, you're looking within yourself. You're trying to uproot any aspects of yourself or or discover or uncover any aspects of yourself that really need to be worked on or kind of like that these qualities have to be removed. And so interestingly, the halacha is you have to take a candle and not a torch. Because if you take a torch, if you see too much, right, it's, it's not going to work. It's going to have the opposite effect. You're going to go, Oi, I'm such a low life. <laughs> Why should I even bother? Why should I even bother? It's never going to happen. You know, but if you take a candle, okay, you go, oh, there's something. <laughs> then you have, then you can get some positive momentum going, right? Remember what the Ishbitzer says. I heard from Reb Shlomo um, about Elul, the fixing of Elul. Again, that's also leading up to Rosh Hashanah where you really want to get your life in a good place so we can all get a, blessed with a good year. The Ishbitzer Rebbe says that in Elul, that's the time to fix what you're doing right. You know, so you say, well, wait a second. Fix what I'm doing right? You mean fix what I'm doing wrong? No, no, no. Fix what you're doing right. But wait a second, if I'm doing it right, why do I have to fix it? Because here's the question. The stuff that you're doing right now, that you're doing anyway, are you doing it with all of your heart? That's the question. See? So, so then when you start doing the things that you're already doing with all of your heart, just do them better because you're doing them anyway. Just do them better. Then that gives you positive momentum to take on the other aspects of your life, the harder aspects of your life. You know? So, so Pinchas, Pinchas is really, again, remarkable because he didn't make it about him. He didn't make it about him. And I was thinking about uh, an interesting correlation between Pinchas and Yitzchak. And the, the reason why I'm connecting 
um, Pinchas and Yitzchak, Isaac, our forefather, is because the gematria, the numerical uh, uh, equivalent of their names, are the same. They're both 208, Pinchas and Yitzchak. So I was thinking, okay, so let's compare the two of them. Let's see if we can sort of like discover some interesting things that they have in common. Right now, on the on the most basic level, you say, okay, well, this is a very, this is a very sort of logical correlation between the two of them, because we know that Yitzchak sort of pioneered this this mita, this attribute called gvura, which is really like uh, strength, serving God with strength, and uh, Pinchas we know is like wow, you know, he takes up the spear and just runs, you know. Now, by the way, on this subject. I heard this morning in the name of Rabbi Beryl Wine a, a, a beautiful teaching on this subject. Again, to you know, because we have to keep on revisiting this idea of what who Pinchas was and what he accomplished. Because it's on the on the on the surface level, he seems like this vigilante who just like dove into the storm of things and just it kind of worked out. And it seems like an endorsement for this type of behavior. But where Pinchas was holding. Pinchas was on the short list to take over Moshe Rabbeinu's job after, after Moshe left. But, but God didn't think that Pinchas was quite the right person to do it. But to show you how awesome Pinchas was, he was, he was right there at the very top. So you have to understand when you've got someone with that different level order of being, that, that he's not, it's like, it's like God says uh, through one of the uh, Nevi'im, through one of the prophets, my thoughts are not your thoughts, right? My ways are not your ways. And it's something very important to keep in mind because we tend to anthropomorphize God. We tend to think that God is just a bigger, stronger, smarter version of us. And he isn't. (laughs) He simply isn't. He makes us. He created us. And he does things differently, you know? And it's, you know, I was talking with someone yesterday who's, you know, like in a, in a very strong spiritual path right now and is really a, a remarkable, remarkable person. And he was just saying to me, you know, and has led a very sort of surprising, interesting life. He said to me, you know, I'm just amazed at how God just confounds my expectations every step of the way. And it's true. It's just, it's this idea that my thoughts are not your thoughts, you know, and, 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 you know, we have to understand that. So, so anyway, what Pinchas did, this is Rabbi Wein's teaching, is the, the verse in the Torah says, the Pasuk says, that Pinchas saw what was happening and grabbed a spear. And what Rabbi Wein said was that what most people do is they grab the spear first and then they see what's happening <laughs> You see, that, that makes all the difference in the world. This is what I'm talking about. This is what I'm talking about, about how important it is for us to rectify our personalities. Because until we rid ourselves of anger, until we rid ourselves of jealousy, until we rid ourselves of ego and things like this, we simply are going to see things in a very, very skewed way. You see, because if you already have the spear and you're just looking for who to attack, you believe me. You know, there's an expression in English that I think is very good. If you're holding a hammer, 
everything looks like a nail. <laughs> right? Isn't that good? Right? If you're holding a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So, so, but that's not what it says by Pinchas. It says Pinchas saw what was happening and then he grabbed the sphere. That's a balanced personality, you know, which is really remarkable because that, that's someone who's thoughtful and rational and balanced and yet, at the same time, a man of total action who, like, risks his life on this. It was kind of a suicide mission because for him to be able to get Zimri and Cosby, who are, you know, in this tent. By the way, some people think that it was happening publicly. It was happening publicly in a sense, but their, their relationship was going on in a, in a guarded tent. <coughs> Bless him. So there were, there were, so it wasn't really, you know, in front of everyone, but it was at the same time. Everyone knew what was happening in the tent. But the, but the point is, is that the tent was surrounded by guards, armed guards. So, so to even get through there was, was not a simple thing. So, so Pinchas, see, I'll tell you, I'll give you another version of that, the idea that he saw and then he, he took the spear. I'll give you another version of this, which is the, I, I believe it was the, the Briskorav, one of the, you know, certainly the greatest Talmudists of the last hundred or more years, and, and the modern system in yeshivas today of how uh, the methodology of how Gomorrah is learned is based on the methodology of the Briskorav. So he's really the, you know, the, the modern way of studying Gomorrah, of Talmud, is, is, is from this man. So, so after World War I, there was just a tremendous breakdown in the infrastructure of the religious, of, of, of Jewish life in general, but also of the religious Jewish life. And the Briskarav, uh, some students, some former students who are now no longer observant, sort of saw the Briskarav, who had been their teacher. So, you know, that's a very awkward, you know, meeting, you know, where it's sort of like you're, your teacher is one of the holy men of the world and you're no longer, you know, on that path and you sort of run into it. So it's sort of like, okay, what do you say, right? So one of them said to the Briskarav, um, you know, he looked at them. He could see that they were no longer observant. And the, one of them says to him, listen, uh, I have so many questions uh, that I want to ask you. And he said... Um, he said, I am, I'll answer, I'm happy to answer any of your questions. He said, just, I want to know one thing. Are these questions that you came up with after you already left religion or before? You see, a lot of times people make a decision, right? Like in this case to leave religious observance and then they come up with lots and lots of questions. But those questions aren't real questions. Those questions are rationalizations and justifications. They're not questions, right? The ones beforehand, that's a different category. So, so again, the reason why I bring this up is the ability to sort through one's own motivations and what's actually driving you. This is, this is, this is very, very important. Um, 
So Pinchas and Yitzchak, both both phenomenal, you know, exalted individuals, and both had this amazing quality of of strength. Now I wanna I wanna say one more thing about Pinchas and just how remarkable his personality was. Um, I'm going to try to explain this simply. It's, it's slightly complicated, but if you concentrate, you'll, you'll be able to get it, okay? So we know that Hashem separated a group of people from the tribe of Levi, and he called them Kahanim. And these Kahanim, you know, if someone is a Kohen, um, uh, or it's translated into English as priest, right? But these are the people who administered in the, in the Holy Temple. And they were sort of the, really the, you know, the, the, the leaders of the Jewish people in terms of bringing offerings in the Holy Temple and also teaching Jews Torah, things like this. So the Kahanim were actually a pretty small group. And they were really, the initial group of Kahanim was just Aaron and his four sons. That's it. Those are the only people who were made into Kahanim. So that's a super small group, right? Super small. We're talking about you know, you had at that point in the desert about two and a half million people and five kahanim. That's it, five kahanim, okay? That's small, all right? Now, the children of, uh, the children of Aaron, so that's Nadav, Avihu, Elazar, and Itamar, okay? Those are the four sons of Aaron who were made kahanim with, with Aaron, their father. Those four sons also had children, but their children weren't made kahanim. Okay? Because the rule was, in order to be a kohen, you had to be born to someone who was already a kohen. And since they were born at a time before God created this group called the kahanim, they couldn't be kahanim, because at that point they were born to a father who wasn't yet a kohen. So, so again, when God made the initial group, there, were, there was Aaron, there were the sons, and only that group got in, not the next generation. But if those sons had any more children, they would be kahana. Is, is that clear? So imagine, now who is that group in the next tier? In other words, so you had Aaron, the four sons, and there was someone in that next group who was already alive. His name was Pinchas. Now, we know or we're getting a, a tiny idea who Pinchas was. Pinchas was this spiritual giant. And what does his father get to do? What does his grandfather get to do? What do his uncles get to do? They get to minister in, in, in the Mishkan, in the tabernacle, where the Shekhinah is coming down, God's indwelling presence and all the... All the closeness to God that, that's going on there, can you imagine how Pinchas felt? A, not being chosen. B, also knowing that he was never going to be able to be a Kohen. Not like, oh, well, maybe if I study harder, if I pray harder or something, uh, I'll become a Kohen. No, it was impossible to become a Kohen at that point. So what I'm saying is, is that I think for someone who has an intense desire to be close to God, to be told that, no, here's your boundary, you're not going further than this boundary, in, in this particular area anyway, that that would have been a source where, that could have aroused anger, 
right? Jealousy, right? Lots of, lots of things. You can think of lots of uh, negative qualities that he could have experienced. And he didn't experience any of them. And the proof that he didn't experience any of them is that when he did this act on behalf of God, he did it in a completely egoless, egoless way. In other words, if he had anger inside of him, some of that anger would have come out in this vengeful act that he was taking against other people. So he couldn't have had any anger inside of him. And yet you see from his life story that he had a very good reason to have some anger or some, some other negative qualities within him. So, so let's go back to Yitzchak for a moment. Let's compare them with Yitzchak. So, like I said, they both, both of their names add up to the same number, 208. What I think is very interesting is if you, you know, there's a form of gematria where you keep on adding the numbers, you keep on distilling it till you get one digit, okay? So, two, 208, 2 plus 8, there's no, you don't add the 0, right? 2 plus 0 is 2, right? Plus 8 is 10. 1 plus 0 is 1. It's rare it's unusual that, that numbers boil down to one. You know? So Yitzchak boils down to one. And Pinchas boils down to one, which is, I think, spiritually special because it shows, because God is one, right? So it just shows that, that level of just, it doesn't mean if one's name doesn't boil down to one that, that you know, that there's a flaw in that person. But nonetheless, I think it's a, it's a, it's a special thing when it does. Okay, so, so Yitzchak is Gvura, strength. Pinchas, you see, the Gvura also. Now, it hit me to look at their two names a little bit further and see, okay, they add up to the same number, but what letters do they have in common? <laughs> right? Because remember, each letter, God created the world out of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and each one is a different energy. He mixed together all the energies and made the universe. So if you, if you have a name, each one of you, the letters in your name is like a separate spiritual ingredient. You know, like if you want to make like a cake, you know, you're going to put in eggs and flour and these spices and these spices and these ingredients. So each one of your letters is like a different spice or a different ingredient, you know, a different energy. So I thought, well, okay, so they've got the same number, but what letters do they have in common? So interestingly, they have two letters in common, which spell out a word. Ches and Yud, which spells out Chai, which means life. Now, what's the first thing to go to is the fact that, what did we say? Pinchas zu Eliyahu. Eliyahu is the one who lives forever. So isn't it interesting that he has the word Chai there, right? And both of them brought life to the Jewish people. Pinchas brought life to the Jewish people, besides the fact that he lives forever, because he stopped this plague from coming. All right? So that was a, a life-giving thing. Yitzchak, also, there's a medrash in Gomorrah Shabbos, and I'm going to paraphrase it slightly, but this is how it goes. And it's a very surprising medrash, because it's, it doesn't unfold the way you would expect it to. So Hashem goes up to um, Avraham and says to Avraham, uh, the Jews are just not, not doing what they're supposed to be doing. 
what should I do? And, and Avram says, wipe him out. Right? So he would not expect that answer from Avram, but this is the Gemara talking. And then Hashem goes to Yaakov and says, you know, the Jews just aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. And Yaakov says, wipe him out. Again, a very surprising answer. And then Hashem goes up to Yitzchak and says, you know, the Jews aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. And Yitzchak says, just wait a second. (laughs) And he says, really, come on. How bad can we really be doing? You know, let's, let's be serious. And then I wish I could quote you the exact numbers. If you want to look it up, it's in the Gemara. Um, but the numbers are great. He says, let's, he says, Yitzchak says to Hashem, let's break down a day. What percentage are people sleeping? They're not doing anything wrong when they're asleep. So that's a third of the day right there. So knock off eight hours, right? Then people are also working. When they're on their job, they're concentrating on their job. What, what terrible things are they really doing while they're, you know, doing their job? So that's another X number of hours. Then they're eating. And then it, it says in the Gomorrah also, they're going to the bathroom. <laughs> you know, so that's how much time is actually left in the day for them to be doing such terrible things. And then he says... I'll tell you what, let's take that amount, whatever that amount is, and we'll divide it in half. You take half, and I'll take half. And my half, you'll put up against the merit from me being put on the Akedah, right? The, the, the binding of Isaac, right, by Abraham. The, the merit that I have from that, and then at that point, there won't be any, any sin left. And God says, okay, it's a deal. <laughs> And from there you see Yitzchak saves the entire Jewish people. So that's the Chai in Yitzchak. Completely saves, saves them, you know? So, so that's, a, that, that's, that's another thing. So, so, so where does that leave us? Where does that leave you and me? And... Uh, I want to recommend a book, a very amazing book. Um, it's called the Ish Kodesh. And um, it's in Hebrew, but it's also, there's a, an English version of it called Sacred Fire, Torah from the Years of Fury, 1939 to 1942. Uh, it was by the Pia Sesna Rebbe, also known the Rebbe, as the Rebbe of the Warsaw Ghetto. And it was uh, translated by uh, uh, Hershey Warch, and uh, is published by Aronson. A very amazing, amazing book. And, you know, the, the, the Rebbe, he, he wrote many books, and, 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 and when you read his commentary, what's, besides the fact that he's a great Hasidic master um, from the line of, the, of Koznitz, um, is that what he's saying, he's saying in the middle of the Holocaust. So when he says, you know, people are suffering, and then you think of your own life, and you think of when he's writing, I mean, you talk about street cred, right? I mean, beyond, 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 beyond. 
And when he talks about the need to keep going, beyond, 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 beyond. And when he talks about really everything, the words, when you understand the situation that he's writing them from, are so empowering for us because you say, if he kept going, if he was able to keep going, what about me? And if this is the advice that he was given under those circumstances, how much more so under my circumstances do I have to take it? And so it's really, it's really, really, really something. And um, one of the things that he mentions is just one. And by the way, the fact that the book exists is a miracle. It's a miracle because he actually was killed by the Nazis, Yamach Shema, and uh, as was his family. And at one point, you have to hear Reb Shlomo Karlbach tell the story. I'm just paraphrasing it, um, but he 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 finished this commentary on the Torah, and he put it in a can, and he wrote a note, and he buried it. He buried it, and he wrote that whoever finds this, please, he says, there may not be any more Jews left in all of Poland, right? And he says, there may not be any Jews left in Europe. He says, but there will be at least some Jews in Eretz Yisrael, in Israel. He says, you have to get this to them. You have to get this to someone who's going to print this and there will be a reward for you and blessings for you if you do it. And a little Polish non-Jewish boy playing in the bombed-out rubble found this canister and opened it and brought it to a soldier. And, and that's how we have the Eish Kodesh. That's how we have this Sefer. And I walked into one of the... I don't even know how to describe it, but one of the moments of my life, I'll, I'll put it that way. I walked into a, a, a bookstore, a Jewish bookstore, and I saw, oh, Eish Kodesh, oh. And it was in Hebrew, a Hebrew version. It's a thin book. And I pulled it out, and I was like, wow, here it is. This is it. This is the Eish Kodesh. And I turned it over, and there was a sticker, and it said, $13. I thought, It's like I couldn't wrap my mind around it. Couldn't wrap my mind about the fact that I was holding a piece of, inf literally of infinity, a piece of infinity in my hand, and there was a sticker that said $13. But can I tell you something? That's this world. That's what this world is. That's what this world is. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. You know, the opportunities to help each other. He used to say over and over again, the greatest thing a person can do is to do another person a favor. The greatest thing in the world a person can do is to do another person a favor. He would say it over and over and over again. And it's like the opportunities, the number of opportunities in this world to do good things are so vast that we just, we think that they have no value. We think that they have no value. To the point where we say, and we're the beneficiaries. That's the crazy thing. God made it, 
God made this incredible win-win world where we get to do something for someone else and we become the beneficiaries. And all of a sudden, somehow in our minds, just because of our own humanity, just because of our own flesh and blood, if I'm doing too much for other people, it's like, you know, wait a second. Oh, hold up. You know, there's something wrong with this system. I'm doing too much good. Right? <laughs> I'm benefiting too much. Right? I mean, that's not the words we use. but So $13. <laughs> you know, it said that the Vilna Gon on his deathbed was, was holding his tzitzis and crying. And they said, why are you crying? And he said, because he was holding the, the strings, he said, I can do this mitzvah in this world for pennies, and I'm about to leave this world, and I'm about to go to this place where I can't even, for zillions, be able to access that level of serving God. Because you don't have tzitzis in heaven. You don't have the ability to shake a lulav in an esrug. You don't have the ability to keep a shabbos. You don't have the ability to smile and bring a smile to another person's face. You see, time, time plays tricks on us. We think, we think that this life is very, very, very long. And it sure feels very long. It sure feels long. But it's, a, it's an illusion. It's the biggest illusion in the world. And if we knew how short it was, we wouldn't stop running from person to person. We wouldn't stop running up and down the street yelling out that there's a God, that God is one. We wouldn't stop. 